Uh, Turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Our our passage this morning is actually going to be the the second half of 6, all of 7, and technically the first three verses of 8. Like I mentioned earlier, we will not stand to read all of that. In fact, we won't even read all of that, much less... Uh, So, um, hear God's Word. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon them and seized, came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And then throughout chapter 7, you get uh, Stephen's Uh, Answer, And so the end of chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, that You would be at work even now. You have uh, inspired these words. Uh, You so worked in Luke that he would uh, write and record the very words You would have recorded for us. You have been at work in the almost 2,000 years since then keeping them, preserving them, maintaining them for Your people. And so we pray that You would work through them and by them in our own hearts. Use them to grow us in wisdom, in knowledge, in understanding, in our love 
for Christ and to be conformed more and more into His image. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. I mentioned it a few minutes ago. Um, whether you realize this or not, uh, it is actually pretty easy for us, even as Christians, uh, to put our trust in things that aren't Jesus. Uh, we struggle from time to time with things like, but I go to church and I go to church when I'm on vacation. We pat ourselves on the back. You should go to church when you're on vacation, by the way. That's a different story. But my point is, we take pride in that. We, we take uh, pride in our works and our obedience. Some of us, uh, believers, unbelievers, we, we battle with, we struggle with uh, trusting in our own uh, goodness, our own merit. We uh, may even bring sort of superstitious ideas into the church, into our Christian life. We trust in our parents' salvation, not really our own. You trust in your children's salvation, maybe not so much our own. Uh, or maybe it's the fact that you know so much of the Bible or you understand uh, so much deep, rich theological truth. Uh, that's your, your, your hope, your, um, uh, your place of salvation. It's your expectation that God accepts you because of the stuff you know. Or because you raised your hand at a Billy Graham crusade. Or you went forward when you were a child and, and that's really the whole of your story. Even believers struggle with this from time to time. Replacing Christ with some work of our own doing, of some, some deed on our part, some relationship that we have, perhaps even a superstition that's actually not even biblical. That's the issue in this passage. That's really the struggle. That's what's going on for these religious leaders around Stephen in Acts 6, 7, and 8. They are they're in the temple. That is the place of God's promised presence. In their minds, because there's a building in Jerusalem called the temple, then they have God's favor. And that's all they need. We have the law and we have the temple, which means we have Moses and, and we know the law and we can recite the law. In fact, we've created dozens and hundreds of other laws to make sure we don't violate the ten that God gave us. Oh, but it's really kind of okay because we have the temple. And as long as we have the temple, then we have God. And if we have God, then everything's fine and our behavior doesn't really matter. It's a bit of superstition mixed in with biblical truth. Yes, God promised His presence in the temple in a special and particular way, but He was never limited to just the temple. And so Stephen, this, this newly elected and ordained deacon, is out performing signs and wonders and presumably, we're not told he was teaching or explaining in the Bible in any way, but it's reasonable to assume that that would go along with signs and wonders. He begins performing these signs and wonders and the people, again, are angry and jealous because of what he can do and 
they can't. And so they began to argue with Stephen. They tried to create a debate. They, they entered into this argument with him. And, and you notice uh, verse 10, they couldn't win the argument because he was full of wisdom and the Spirit, verse 10 tells us. That, by the way, is, was a requirement for being elected a deacon. I mean, you can look back at the beginning of the chapter in verse 5. Um, well, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. That was a requirement to be elected as a deacon earlier in the chapter. And now we're getting the evidence, the proof that Stephen was full of wisdom and the Spirit. And so these, these men couldn't argue with Stephen. They couldn't win the debate. They couldn't convince him otherwise. And you know the phrase, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, these guys instead went the Tanya Harding route. If you can't beat them, hit them again. Uh, if you can't beat them, hire Jeff Galuli to go in and beat them up. So that's what they did. They kind of gathered a group of Jeff Galuli types that uh, made up stories about Stephen. They said he's, he's blasphemous. He hates the temple. He says the temple's going to be destroyed. He, he's, he's against Moses and the law. And he says the, the customs of Moses are going to be changed. They make up all these things to say about Stephen. And, and really the charges boil down to just those two things. The temple and the law given to Moses. Again, you need to remember, these are people who, for them... Having the temple meant having God's favor. And if you don't have the temple, how can you have God's favor? It's, it's really not unlike our kids do this, right? Our kids will say, but if we don't have a fireplace, how can Santa come to our house? This is the same kind of superstition. If I don't have a temple... How can God be here? I'm in trouble. I need this temple. And so if you, Stephen, are talking about destroying the temple, you can see their fear. You can see their concern. You can see their hatred and their anger for, for Stephen. And so Stephen begins his response throughout chapter 7. And he basically... First of all, he doesn't ever defend himself. You, you notice he never actually says, but Jeff Galuli's a liar. He never says, well, these men don't even know who I am. They've never heard me teach. These guys just hired them to make up stories about me. He never says, well, you misquoted me. He doesn't hire anybody. Well, I'm going to file a counter defamation suit and take bring you up on charges for, for you know, slander, for defamation, for whatever. He never actually defends himself. Instead, he begins with Genesis 12 and walks through the entire Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, the rest of the Pentateuch kind of quickly 
touches on Joshua, 2 Samuel, Isaiah. He brings all of them into his, into his sermon, into his speech before these Jewish leaders. Truth is, if you're reading through the chapter, if you're reading through, you know, you're doing one of those read through the Bible in a year things and you get to six, seven, and eight and, and you read the whole thing through, maybe you're thinking to yourself, why did Stephen start so far back? I mean, why go all the way back to Abraham? And why those people and not some other people? Why does he choose to not even mention Gideon? Why does he not even mention any of the judges for that matter? Why does he choose the people he chooses? Maybe you're also wondering, could I do that? If someone walked up to you and said, what's the story of your faith? Tell me about this Jesus in whom you believe. Could you walk them through without, hold on time out, let me grab and search my eye device. Could you hit some highlights, some anchors throughout the story of, of God's uh, story of, of redemption and grace? So Stephen begins with Abraham and retraces Old Testament history, but he does it for Jewish religious leaders. You do realize they knew everything Stephen said. He wasn't telling them anything they didn't already know. Abraham, yeah, well, hold on, Stephen, hold on. We're descendants of Abraham. We know we skip to some stuff we don't already know. Okay, well, Moses, hold on. We know about the law. We've got the law. We're all about the law. We've added to the law. We love the law so much. We've added to it to make sure we don't break it. Joshua, Joseph, David. Hold on, David. I mean, that's it's the king, right? I mean, we they're not saying anything. He's not saying anything they don't already know. The problem wasn't that they didn't know it. The problem was they didn't know what to do with it. And so Stephen, in this chapter-long speech, models for us how to understand the Old Testament. Real quick, I want to I want us to work through his speech. So keep your eyes on uh, Acts chapter seven. We're going to quickly sort of hit some of the the people in the highlights. Notice first of all in verses two through seven, Abraham was in Ur. He was still in Mesopotamia when God called him to go to a new country. And basically, God said, "Look, Abraham, here's the deal. I want you to to leave." Ur, and then leave Haran. I'm going to take you somewhere. And he basically said, when you get there, I'll let you know. He didn't say, let me give you the GPS coordinates so you could enter it into Google Maps and figure out how the best way. He said, I just follow me. And when you get there, I'll let you know. And so Abraham follows God to what would end up being the promised land, but it still was hundreds of years away from actually owning and possessing it. In fact, for that matter, Abraham only owned basically a piece of land with a cave on it that he bought for a burial plot. 
And yet, in Genesis 15 and 17, we have God's covenant promises to Abraham. And He promises to Abraham a place, land, a territory, the promised land, Canaan, people, descendants. At this point, Abraham had no kids. So He promises children, descendants, like the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky. And He also promises His presence. I will be God to you and your children after you. And on that promise alone, Abraham followed God wherever he called him. And then in verse uh, verse 9, uh, starting in verse 9, he shifts focus to Joseph. And so Stephen begins to talk about uh, Joseph, God had told Abraham that his descendants would spend uh, 400 years in slavery in a foreign country. And that came true under Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. But if you recall, Joseph is in Egypt because his brothers hated him. He was in Egypt because his brothers were jealous and angry. Because Joseph was the favorite son. Because Joseph had that coat of many colors, which was sort of like a robe of royalty. And he flaunted it in front of his brothers. Oh, and had a couple of dreams in which his brothers and his parents were bowing down to him and told them about it. And so his brothers said, we got to get rid of this guy. So they sold him as this... Because killing him would be wrong, you see. We can't kill him because then his blood would be on our hands. So what we'll do is we'll sell him as a slave to these Midianite travelers. And, and what they do with him, who really cares? It's, we can wash our hands of him. We're done. And so Joseph is in Egypt because his brothers were angry and jealous. But Joseph was in Egypt... Because God put him there. There was a famine coming. Decades later, mind you. Not coming like next week or even next year. Decades later, there was going to be a famine. But Joseph had to be there in Egypt long enough to gain favor and trust from Potiphar, from Pharaoh, from to, to climb to basically second in command so that he could... Plan and prepare and preserve God's people, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, when that famine came. And so God's promise to Abraham shows up as God's providence to Joseph. And then in verse 20, in verse 20, he changes focus again from Joseph to Moses. Moses would be called, and this is now 400 years later, would be called by God to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt to to take them to the promised land. And during that time, Moses killed an Egyptian. And it was so bad that even his own fellow countrymen were scared. He intervenes into an argument between Israelites And they said, well, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And so Moses left. Forty years out in the wilderness. Forty years in Midian. Forty years he's 
not in Egypt. And it's there. Look at verse 30. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. He's out in the wilderness around Midian. He's not in Egypt. He's not in the promised land. And this bush catches on fire without actually catching on fire and burning up. And notice verse 33. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now hold on. That's not the temple. It's not Canaan. It's not the promised land. How can that be holy ground? It's wilderness out sort of Moses sort of in exile for fear out of Egypt. How can that be holy ground? Well, it's holy because God's there. Because God is there in that bush meeting with Moses. And notice verse 34. God knows the plight of His people. I've heard their cries in Egypt for freedom, for deliverance. How can He hear their cries? There's no temple in Egypt. God's promise to Abraham, I will be God to you and to your children after you, to your descendants after you. God hasn't broken that promise. He's still with His people. Just because you're in Egypt doesn't mean God isn't with you. Remember, Stephen's hearers are getting angry. They're getting frustrated. They, they're thinking, but wait... This is God's presence on earth. This temple, this building, this mailing address. We're going to limit God's presence to a mailing address. You can run down and, and, and fill out a card and send it to whatever, you know, for Temple Mount Drive, Jerusalem, whatever the zip code is. Stephen reminds the counsel of Father Abraham and Joseph and Moses. None of them were in the promised land. All of them had God's presence. You can imagine their confusion. You can imagine their frustration. There's no temple. Look at verse 44. They had a tabernacle. They had the tent during the wilderness wanderings after leaving Egypt. It wasn't until David, another um, couple of hundred years later, decided to build a temple. And then Solomon, his son, that actually built the temple. It wasn't until then that there even was such a thing as a fixed temple, a fixed building. The place of God's presence with His people. And yet, verse 48, Isaiah writes, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? How can you limit God's presence to this building if heaven is His throne 
and the earth where he rests his feet. He created all of it. And you're going to say God can only be right here on this piece of earth. Isaiah says he's everywhere. Stephen shows us that this temple isn't what the religious leaders think it is. They've assumed that they have God's favor simply because they have the temple, because they have this building in Jerusalem. It's become like a lucky rabbit's foot. It's become like a horseshoe hanging over their door. It's become sort of this idea that if I have this, I have God's favor. And there's no account for behavior or activity or trust or faith or grace. It's not the Bible, it's superstition. The Old Testament shows us that God is with His people where His people are. And that's been true since Abraham. It's been true since Joseph. It's been true since Moses. And God can't be limited to a mailing address. But notice verse 37. See, these religious leaders are guilty of putting Jesus to death. His blood is on their hands. But notice verse 37. Moses anticipated that. Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's anticipating there to be a greater prophet than Moses. He's looking forward to the coming of the promised Messiah. Moses built the tabernacle, the precursor of the temple. Jesus came... And according to John 1, dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. Moses delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus delivers his people from bondage to sin. Here's the thing. Let me encourage you. You're weak of faith. You're struggling with Assurance, you're doubting your salvation. Stephen's message is that wherever you go, as God's child in Christ by grace, He's with you. It's God's promise I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Be comforted. Be encouraged by that promise. You need to know. You may be going through darkness and difficulty. You may be dealing with fear and sickness and disease. You may be dealing with relationship troubles. You may be dealing with all sorts of things. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, not by God. Moses was rejected by his people, not by God. Abraham wandered in a land that was not yet his own, and yet God was with him through all of it. You know Psalm 139. You know the promises there. However high I climb or deep I climb, if I get it as dark as I can get it, or if I can get it as bright as I can get it, 
If I'm in the middle of Jerusalem or out on the waves of the sea, God, you are there. Be comforted. Be encouraged by God's promised presence. This, of course, becomes clearer to us, right? I mean, even Stephen doesn't have all the information like you and I do. The rest of the New Testament isn't even written yet while these events are going on. He doesn't have things like you are the, 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 the temple of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't have written before him yet the Gospels. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, good luck me being there. No, that's not the promise. When two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Believer, be encouraged. The reality is, I don't know if you can have an automatopoeia action. You know, it's one of those things that, I think that's the right word, that sounds like what it said, like boom. It kind of makes a boom when you say boom. That's the automatopoeia, right? I don't know if you can do that with a, an event, with a thing. I don't know. If, but Stephen's actually living the very thing he's preaching. Because in this moment, he needs to know God's with me. Why? Because the people around him are picking up stones. They're closing their ears. They're screaming and yelling. I'm not listening to you. You can't say that. No, 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 we're not listening. Drag him outside and stone him. Oh, and it just so happens that this is the event that accomplishes the theme of Acts. Do you remember God's promise back in the promise of Christ and the command really to his to the apostles back in chapter 1 you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth this right here causes the scattering of God's people Notice verse 1 of chapter 8 Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of... That sounds familiar. Judea and Samaria. Except for the apostles. God's actually accomplishing His purposes of growing the church beyond Jerusalem through this sermon and through this martyr which is yet more comfort to us, right? There is no temple. There is no physical address temple on the earth right now. It's been destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. Not long after the end of, of the book of Acts, basically. And it's, and it's still destroyed. It's still not there. And, and guess what? I don't think it ever will be there. I don't think there's ever a rebuilding of the temple. I don't think that matters. I think that's a regression. I think that's going backwards. I think that's going the wrong direction. Part of the point is, if you and I are dependent on a temple for God's presence, we are out of love. The last 2,000 years, every believer has been. Be comforted. Be encouraged. You have the promise of God's presence with His people. Let me close with just a few questions. First of all, could you 
connect the Old Testament dots the way Stephen does. And we, I think in our world today, we have this pattern of reading the Bible, a verse here, a verse there. We kind of grab a little here and a little there, and we miss the story that the Bible actually is. Could you connect the Old Testament dots the way Stephen does? If, if you were called uh, to give an account for the hope that's within you, are you prepared? Second question, sort of sort of like that. Can you retrace God's presence, providence, promises throughout His, His history of faithfulness to His people? Not just in your own life, but in the lives of His people throughout all of creation. The reality is, knowing the facts of the Old Testament isn't the same as understanding the meaning of the Old Testament. Knowing the facts of the Old Testament is not the same thing as knowing Jesus, who is the really the point of the Old Testament. In fact, back in chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen tells his hearers, hey, guess what? You're not a descendant of Abraham. You're not a descendant of Moses. You're not a descendant of Joseph. You're actually a descendant of the people who rose up and complained against Moses and Abraham and Joseph. You stiff-necked people, verse 51, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. All the prophets your fathers persecuted. And now you've killed Jesus. You think you're a child of Abraham. In actuality, you're a child of those who would argue against Moses, who would sell Joseph into slavery. And last question, are you trusting in Jesus? Or are you trusting in some superstitious version of Jesus? Some superstitious version of Christianity that is almost maybe sounds biblical, but is a lot more superstition than actually Christ? Are you trusting in Him or are you trusting in your own works, your own merit, your own goodness? There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we might be saved. Turn in faith to Christ. Away from your goodness, away from your works, away from your superstition and trust in Christ alone. Let's pray together.